Are we ready to rock and roll? That's not Star Wars-y. What do they say instead of rock and roll? You haven't put on the Chewbacca mask yet. All right, you, you want to wear it? Pam, you want to wear it? You want me to wear it? Okay, I'm going to do this. I can't see a damn thing. Okay, so next we have yeah, we'll get a picture after Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum, Professor of Biblical Studies and Christian Origins at ILIF School of Theology and Affiliate Faculty of the Center of Judaic Studies at the University of Denver, right here in the Mile High City. Again, uh, shout out to Burns family for allowing us to have this space and enjoy their delicious beer. So uh, we will definitely, well, I say we, I would love to come back if y'all will have me back. Yes. I, want, I want to come back to Burns. And uh, this is, again, for those listening online, uh, you, some of y'all, have, if you've listened a while, you know so many uh, people in this community right here have been on these podcasts throughout the hundred and something episodes that we've had. 180 plus. 180 plus. And we are still, we are still podcasting. Don't Just worry. Slowly. It's different now because now we Zoom. But man, the basement. Oh, we get to like wait, wait, wait. Feel, we have to embarrass our original uh, editor because he's here, he right? Because so, Dan, you deserve our eternal gratitude. Eternal. Dan, Dan, uh, there can only be one, really. I mean, like the yeah, you, we started off spoiled with like the best pod master editor, but. You know, Dan, Dan's got to go to bed at 9 p.m. and he's he's got he's got duties. Lots of <laughs> that's our ongoing joke. Uh, okay, so uh, Pam, this is what uh, this is what Mark said about you and what character he thinks you identify with in Star Wars. And then I'm gonna well, I'm gonna start off by telling everybody what you what you say about yourself. So you identify with Yoda because he is an old teacher. It's not just because he's old, but he knows a lot. Uh, but it's not what people expect often baffles his students because he's not communicating in a straightforward way. If you've listened to some podcasts, you can tell, yeah. Uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Playful, unpredictable, wants students ultimately to learn for themselves. So, uh, Mark, this is like the dating game. You guys, you guys didn't, you were not one with the force on this one. He says the character is, that he thinks she resonates with is Leia. And you know that's a, that's a great character. I mean, he's because fun. she she knows her mind and she takes charge. Simple and sweet, right there. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, so we are we're kind of sh- we're staying in the same vein with with uh, the Torah, the rise of the Torah. Uh, talking talking a little bit, obviously about uh, Christianity as well, because evident- evidently, you know. Uh, you're a Christian scholar, which yeah. is, I think you were, did you say you were the o- one of the o- only or few Here's Jewish Christian scholars? Is, yeah? Sorry. The microphone. I'm naturally loud, so <laughs> this could over, is this okay? Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, well, there's more of them now than there used to be. Uh, Jews who studied the New Testament, and then there were even fewer Jewish women who were scholars of early Christianity. But there's a few more of them now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ho-ho-hum news. Really. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Back in the day, it was like a yeah. big deal. Yeah, and now, it was. Yeah. Okay. Controversial. There was even a story in the New York Times and other things. It was so weird that I was hired at a Ooh. Christian school. Yeah, and if you, if you've never read it, I, I do recommend. Uh, Paul was not a Christian. Not you, it, it was not your choice of, of a title, but I think it's a great title because it, it pops. Yeah. And it, it does makes pop. he, it makes people go, hmm, what? And then they, you know, yeah. It, it's a fun book. If you've not read it, go check it out. Any. You know what? We need to go back in a second. Uh, Mark, can you come up for just two seconds? 
you are writing a book right now. Yeah, he is. So do you mind telling everyone? Because this is what a lot of this comes from. Yeah. A shameless plug. <coughs> shameless plug. Uh, I don't know what title you saw. It just changed because the publisher was like, no. Explain that publishers get, when you write a book as oh, an author. Oh, it's not just publishers, it's you marketing. You sign a contract. Yeah. The publisher has control of the title. And you, it's because it's part of the market. <laughs> they all say, they I just got the contract this morning. <laughs> he thought he would be able to convince them, the marketing yeah. department. Didn't work. Uh, so what did I, uh, how Deuteronomy created Israel is the title. Which I like. <laughs> no, nobody will argue with me about that. <laughs> what he didn't also say, I have to say this, is there's a scholar that we didn't, I read his, who wrote a book called The Invention of Hebrew. It's a very scholarly book, but should you want to dig through it. His name is Seth Schwartz, and I admire him a great deal. Sanders, excuse me, Seth Sanders. There's another scholar I admire whose name is Seth Schwartz. Um, but... When Mark said, Mark submitted his manuscript to a book series edited by Seth Sanders, really one of the best scholars on ancient Judaism writing now, who was really excited about it and accepted it. This is, in the academic world, this is kind of, I think, the greatest affirmation. So I realize to the wider world it may not mean much, but I was frankly jealous of Mark, <laughs> that he got the affirmation of Seth Sanders. So. Awesome. Woo! So now, episode two, Rise of the Torah. Now, and, and you, don't have, you don't have to have seen these movies or these shows. So the Mandalorian, that, that's kind of the context here, and then we're going to work our way down. There is the way of the Mandalore. It's a fundamental religion followed by strict Orthodox Mandalorians. For those that have seen the show, you know this is the way. The creed that we hear from the main character declares, I swear on my name and the names of the ancestors that I shall walk the way of the Mandalore. And the words of the creed shall be forever forged in my heart. This is the way. All right. In comparison, a young Jewish Padawan child recites the Shema. To start out, and I think this is just helpful for a lot of people because, uh, Mark, you referred to this earlier as well. Um, will you unpack the Shema prayer in Judaism as it speaks to something that's just profoundly to Judaism's way. Yeah, and it relates to orality and writing, I think, as well. So the Shema, even for people who aren't Jewish, they often, if they know one thing, they know this is like a Jewish prayer. Uh, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, um, often um, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone, something like that, it starts. It's interesting that it's labeled a prayer because it's actually addressed not to God, but to fellow Israelites. Um, but in any case, the Shema's from um, uh, Deuteronomy 6, a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 6. It's a, basically, I read you the first line, and the rest of it is, I should have practiced this, I can actually do it in Hebrew better than English, but you shall write all these, so a hero is the Lord, the Lord is mine. You shall write all these, all my teachings on your, call the, on, on your heart. You shall um, recite them and you shall teach them to your children at home, when you're at home and when you're away. You shall um, 
post them on the well first yeah Tied you shall post them on the on the door symbols on your doorpost okay did I get that wrong in the reverse order we do have a rabbi here would actually know the question I'm sorry I'm embarrassed but you shall um, uh, post them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates you shall bind them as a sign on your forehead. hand and on your forehead okay now later Jews so that's in Deuteronomy the book we've been talking about later Jews rabbinic Jews and by rabbinic Jews I'm going to mean these are like the heirs you know the Pharisees for those of you Christian know so the Pharisees are like the proto rabbis so later the the rabbis <clears throat> in the Mishnah and later in the Talmud these are Jewish authoritative writings that come later they interpret these words about as literally as you could possibly interpret them. So um, I'm sure some of you have seen mezuzot or a, a mezuzah, even if you're not Jewish, Jewish friends, right? The, the, the thing, I have one on my house um, on the doorpost. So it, it contains, it has a little scroll in it. And if you're a good Jew, you have a kosher scroll. I'll explain in a minute what that means. In, in your mezuzah, which has this paragraph from Deuteronomy and a couple other pieces written in it. Um, also, if you've ever seen what, what are called tefillin, uh, usually it's, you see this mostly with Orthodox Jews who bind um, something around their hand and on their forehead and do something called davening, pray, praying, praying in the morning. Okay, so though in those things is the Shema. So now, I don't know, in Deuteronomy, the person who wrote those words, I suspect that that writer meant all of the teachings of the Torah, or at least all of Deuteronomy, not the words that said, teach these words, right? It, it would sort of be like if I put a post-it note on here, and I asked somebody, I left it here, and I said to an administrative assistant, please take this to Ryan. She looked at the note and took the note and put it over there and left the actual document that the post-it note was attached to. That's sort of what it feels like with the mezuzah. It's just the teaching about teaching, not the actual teachings in, in the mezuzah. So, uh, but it's very important in that it's absolutely essential. It's recited. It's from the Torah, so it's always prayed with a certain kind of chant. And yet, it has to be written in a very precise way. I think we're going to get to more questions about that, so maybe I shouldn't get ahead. It's okay. I, I thought myself. I thought for a second there that you deleted our, our schedule, which <laughs> would which would have been really funny, full circle. But I have like, what time is it? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I ha it's on paper at home next to where my purse was. <laughs> um. <laughs> The Jedi Order follows a strict code and set of practices in their study and use of the Force. You may say the same with Rabbinic Judaism as it relates to the passing down of the Torah. What was the science and art of textual reproduction for the Jedi rabbis between the second and sixth centuries? I can do a lecture series for I, you. I was gonna say. I promise it'll take less than an hour to answer this question. Um, okay. So now we've jumped ahead several centuries. So if Deuteronomy is, let's not get into the debates, Mark, but <laughs> let's just put Deuteronomy in the sixth century, sixth, fifth century before. Uh, now I want to hear these debates no, later. No, 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 oh. no, no, you don't. Okay, <laughs> they're not. Okay, 
but we kill each other over them, scholars. Okay, so, <clears throat> so let's just say, so 600 years roughly before the time of Jesus. So now we're jumping forward several centuries till after the time of Jesus. And this very important book called the Mishnah is written, uh, or maybe, I shouldn't say written, Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about the oral Torah. Is that on here somewhere? Um, so it's put together, codified, as a set of Jewish teachings. And some who compare ancient Jude, like myself, who compare ancient Judaism to ancient Christianity would say that the Mishnah plays a similar role for Pharisaic and then later rabbinic Jews that the New Testament plays for Christians. But in any case, so on top of the Mishnah, we get another set of writings, and this happens, it's, a, it's like an accretion of writings over centuries, and we call that the Talmud. Now, there is a treatise in the Talmud, relatively late, a whole treatise that tells you all the rules for how to copy a Torah. First and foremost, it must be on a scroll. Now, by the year 600, see, 600 years after the time of Jesus, Scrolls are like writing on manual typewriters, maybe. Um, so, and to this day, Jews, a Torah isn't a Torah, a kosher Torah, a ritual object, unless it's written on a scroll. So in a synagogue, so it's not as if there aren't copies of the Torah in books um, with bindings, you know, that sort of thing. But a Torah isn't a proper Torah unless it's on a scroll. So Jews, so writing is, by the time we get to the time of Jesus, the technology of writing has been around for quite a while. Do we credit, we credit the Sumerians, I think, and not the Egyptians, or is that still debated? Egyptologists credit the Egyptians with inventing writing, and scholars of Mesopotamia, What's that? Sumerian. For, really? No, Phoenicians for the alphabet. Okay, anyway, okay, we'll have that discussion later. So it also, so writing initially, people don't figure out that an alphabet, we can write everything we need to write in English with how many letters? 26 letters. You can learn these in kindergarten, right? So if I were, you decided you all wanted to learn Ethiopic, which is, sort of a language between um, syllabic, symbolic languages and alphabetic languages. It has no vowels, so every letter has to change form depending on what vowel sound it's used to having. So in order to just, before you can get started with Ethiopic, you gotta memorize 14 versions of the letter B and 14 versions of every other consonant. I don't, so those are hard. To get down to 26 letters of the alphabet and to be able to write every single word we write is an astonishing technology. And by the way, that is a, plays a very important role now in digitization, even though numbers underlie all those things. Something called Unicode also presumes letters and conversions of those to numbers. And if you had every form of a letter was not stable, you'd have something of a problem. So <clears throat> what was the question again? Oh, okay. So, um, okay. So 
Jews, in those 600 years after the time of Jesus, the Torah, um, the rabbis have a saying that, that they, they decide, they use this language, the time of prophecy is over. There's no more revelation. So that those books that comprise for Jews, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what Jews maybe call the Tanakh, or just the Bible, um, there, there'll be no more revelations from God. And so everything else is either commentary or traditions that have been passed down orally that help you understand what the heck it means, as Steve says. Because if you write something, and what Jews do is they figure out um, Jewish scribes become sort of the high-tech version of scribes. I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds arrogant, but Jewish scribes were far superior to Christian scribes for most of medieval history in terms of their accuracy rate because they develop methods to ensure accuracy. Have you, if you've ever tried to copy something on, I, I don't know if anybody does this anymore in print, but you know, maybe some of you in grade school, you had to copy something from a book and you skip a line or you write the same line twice or whatever, scribes do that all the time. Christian manuscripts are sort of all, are very messy things, very messy things. Jewish manuscripts are beautiful things. <laughs> um, and they create all sorts of technologies of counting the number of letters, the number of columns. They stabilize everything so that you know if you've made a mistake, you know, before you get to the very end. This becomes important because written Torah means written Torah. That God gave us the written Torah and we're never, ever, ever going to change it. Christians made fun of Jews because they worried about every little jot and tittle, okay? That every little, and, and in fact, even errors are written in today's Torah because if the exemplar manuscript you copy had them, they just kept copying them exactly the same way. So that meant the Torah was utterly stable for a lot of different Jewish communities, okay, with minimal error rates. However, interpretation, are we going to talk about this later? I don't want to get ahead of myself. Well, Do we uh, get to talk about interpretation? Yeah, a bit. I yeah, we, okay. we, well, I mean, and, 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 if we, and if we don't, someone's going to remember that and bring it up okay. in the questions. Yeah, because I want to talk yeah. about the difference between the attitudes toward a written text yeah. and the interpretation of it, because Jews and Christians have very different yeah, attitudes. We'll, yeah, we will, we will get there. So, yeah, basically, like, it's uh, beyond OCD, right? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's beyond okay. OCD. Yeah. And not anybody it's like women couldn't copy. It's, it's a high-level profession to be a scribe. And today, for some modern Jews, it's a great spiritual accomplishment or practice to write out a Torah. To, and it takes, there are rules like no, no letters can touch another letter. Um, that a letter, every letter must be rendered so that essentially a five-year-old could distinguish it. So legibility is primary. So all those kinds of rules, that stuff doesn't exist in Christianity. So, okay. All right, so we're, yeah, we're going to kind of make that tr transition here. So the concept of the force is an energy field that binds, binds, there it is, all living things. So while on the same rebel team with Luke Skywalker, we see that Han Solo, or Mark George, 
with a different <laughs> approach that says hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster. While a bit sloppy, we all know that Han's approach was useful and welcome to the rebel cause. With this unified bond and mission between two different methods of action, let's make the jump now to the differences between the Jewish and Christian practices of transcribing the Bible uh, to their earliest readers. So will you, this is a big one, will you compare and contrast these two uh, and then answer this one. Why didn't Christians, why didn't they follow the Jewish scribal practices? Because then we wouldn't have 30,000, yeah. 40,000 denominations probably today. Yeah, I think that's right. It created so many problems uh, for Christianity. Um, did Chat GPT write this question? No, yeah. I, I did. <laughs> I, I did. Okay. They, they, just, they just gave me some of the rebel, the rebel okay. stuff. I was, I, like, I was trying I to think of the now. Okay. They, so, they, they don't know that much. Yeah. Okay. So this is really, really important. And I'm, I'm going to, because in a, a forum like this, I can propose theories that are much harder for me to, appro uh, to prove at an academically rigorous level to my colleagues but that I intuitively think are true. Um, so Jews obsess about every jot and tittle, literally. That accusation is true of Jews. But after all, God gave Moses the Torah. It's holy writ. If there's anything you're going to, you know, take some care to get right, that would seem to be the thing you'd worry about, right? Christians, from the very beginning, there's no rules. You can translate it however you want. You can, I mean, translation becomes a thing. We have all, I could, that would, that would be fun to show you some early Christian papyri manuscripts, really early ones, where the scribes are so sloppy. It just looks like, like I have one of the 23rd Psalm, where this poor scribe, I don't know if he's fallen asleep or it's his first day at scribe school, but it's so bad. He writes line three, three times. And he just, he starts making arrows rather than erasing. And so the whole thing is out of order. Now, so what Christians do is there, there's a lot of freedom. We have numerous forms, and there's a book going around with pictures of Bibles, that um, there's no rules. There's no official rules. There are within uh, late medieval stuff, there become individual scri Christian scribal schools where there's teachings about how to do this better, and they improve their accuracy rate eventually. But, um, but initially, anybody who, um, they were probably what we'd call documentary scribes. So in ancient Greek and Roman times, if you and I, uh, I don't know, make a, I, you sell me your house, we have a real estate contract. They, they had those in antiquity, just like we have them. So I buy some property for you. We go hire a scribe, and he writes the contract, which, by the way, probably neither of us can read. Um, but we then sign it, and we just trust that he got it right. Okay? So there were scribes like that, and they actually charged by the letter or by the line. And our earliest Christian manuscripts are like where somebody went to the local post office or get a notary and say, we need you to write the letters of Paul, and we, we, we know they counted their letters for payment sake. Um, but there's a lot of errors, and so these are not the highest level kind of thing. By the time we get to the fourth century, some of you have heard of Emperor Constantine. He does um, 
contract with some higher level scribes to produce some nice versions of the Bible. But what happens early on is Christians say, what matters is the message, sort of the opposite of Marshall McLuhan, if you know who that is. What matters is the message, not the medium. So you can write it in any language, you can write it any way you want. It doesn't matter if it exactly matches. Now, a lot of ancient church scholars, a lot of smart guys, know that they end up with all these manuscripts that don't match. And it becomes something of a problem for them. But the great Saint Augustine, sometimes pronounced Augustine, wrote a couple different treatises about this, about how the Bible wasn't about words on a page, as Jews think. It's about the message of Jesus Christ and the salvation of the world. So as long as that message is created, you're good. You're good. Okay? And so Christians didn't even have rules against um, erasing biblical texts. So Jews would not throw away any piece of script that had God's name written on it. So um, synagogues often had these sort of giant manuscript trash rooms called Genesis, and they would just toss old text, you know, when it wasn't good anymore. But you never erase scripture. That's like, that's, that's an act of profanity and desecration. Christians, no problem. So one of our most important ancient Christian Bibles, um, they, somebody erased the whole damn Bible in order to put in the sermons of this guy named Ephraim the Syrian, who must have been a hell of a preacher, because they erase all of the Christian Bible. Hey, some things don't change. Right. So um, parchment is very expensive, so they recycled it. They didn't waste it. You could scrape it out. And so they write this. And so we threw x-ray and infrared. We can read the biblical text under Ephraim's brilliant sermons. But um, for Jews, this was, the, uh, this was a complete desecration of scripture. So for me, one thing that's interesting is both Jews and Christians claim, at least for certain set of books, um, this scripture is holy, the word of God, greatly revered. They treat it completely differently. Jews, you got to get the text exactly right. But really, no Jew ever threw out another Jew from the synagogue from having crazy interpretations. They entertained all, signs, all kinds of playful interpretations. Christians, they killed each other mm -hmm. over prepositions. Because, um, and here's my theory that I can't prove, yet, or I'm still working it out, is that in Christianity, heresy becomes a big thing in a way it doesn't take hold in Judaism. Am I squeaking? No, it's not you. Too loud? It's not you. You sure? Yep. Okay. I have overwhelmed other sound systems before. Um, where was I? It was something very important. Heresy. God, thank you. Okay. So heresy. So Christians, um, by the time we get, I mean, even a couple hundred years before Constantine, Christians are disputing the meaning. Right? So if I say it doesn't matter exactly what this says, what matters is what it means. Well, interpretation now becomes debated. 
right? If there's no stable text, what do you need to make stable? You need to make stable the meaning. So that's why all these creedal statements and all these other things, those become uniform and concrete. <laughs> that's my idea. Oh, I'm still working on how you're, to You're messing with a lot of, of Christians out there. Am I? And that's okay. I thought I was I stating it, the obvious. No, no, I think it's a good yeah. thing. <laughs> I think we just need to be thankful there's any women left in the New Testament at all. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, we'll move um, from there on to more s the symbolic meaning. Uh, the Star Wars saga features various symbols or icons, such as the Jedi Order's emblem or the Galactic Empire's emblem, which you probably have on your table do somewhere. I, I think, I do I have this? First, yeah. this is Luke. This is the, resi the res resist. Is this the resistance, right? Yeah. yeah. On the, like the planes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I should pay Just, more. But it's not on the on the Falcon. So that's that's. Oh, a okay, right. That's an error. That's an error. Yeah. Disney. Go uh, on, Janelle. So <laughs> first, what are the differences between the Jewish and Christian views on Scripture as either icons or symbols, and how does this reflect itself in their particular religious context? Okay, this will only take a half an hour. Han Solo's um, okay. laughing. Why are you laughing, <laughs> Han Solo? Because he knows I, yeah, think about this. Okay, so first thing you need to know is um, it was very expensive and difficult just technologically to copy and bind an entire Christian Bible. It's a very, very big book. Um, so a lot of, most of our early manuscripts of the New Testament are really partial manuscripts, gospel books, collections of Paul's letters, that sort of thing. Gospel books were the most important thing, and they usually had a cover with an iconographic image of Jesus on them. When Christians held a heresy trial, the gospel book sat on a chair as the judge with the bishops on either side, of course, since the book didn't talk, um, <laughs> at least the way I do. Um, but it was, um, in some cases, described as a witness to the proceedings, and in other cases, the judge. So the book isn't being opened or read. The book itself, to go back to Deuteronomy, is the sort of, I don't know what to say, controlling force. Um, and it's a ritual object for, for ancient Christians, and certainly Jews always, it, it's treated with a certain kind of respect. I already mentioned you can't just throw Bibles away. Um, we'll leave that up to Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Christians <laughs> don't have, um, they tried, actually, there's a bishop. I, so as I said, I've been looking for research clues on this, and I have found one bishop in the 6th century who realized that all these um, Christians are erasing Bible texts to put their favorite preacher's greatest hits sermons in there. A mixtape, right? Um, and he tries to outlaw this. It's called a palimpsest, which just means writing something over something else. And so there, because someone is, is thinking, maybe we shouldn't be doing that to our sacred text. So now, for Jews also, the, as I said, the fact that 
the Torah, to be a true Torah, has to be in the form of a scroll, even though what's in a, a book, a Torah book, that children study to learn it is exactly the same text. Um, but to be a ritual object, it has to be in the form of a Torah. And even I, speaking now not as a scholar, but as a Jewish person, when I get even like close to a Torah, I get, I tremble. Um, I tremble as if it has power. And most, what time is it? Um, no, you can keep going. It's, it's good. You're good. <laughs> You're gracious. Um, I was just going to say that writing in the ancient world, and I don't know if this is partly because most people still can't read the writing, but it, the person who asked a question about mysticism, that writing, people often were in awe of writing even if they couldn't read it. They knew it contained meaning. And we have lots of ancient Christian amulets, which is frankly probably what a mezuzah is on the door of a Jew's house. Amulets that people wore around their neck. They often contain healing stories from New Testament texts. And they're probably worn to help with healing or to ward off disease or, or something like that. So, um, so even if people couldn't read it, they cherish them. And we do have this phenomenon also in the basically 400 years after Jesus, in that time in particular, there are these sort of um, opportunistic magicians running around. And these magicians will take stuff from any religious tradition if they think it has power, if saying the words have power. And somehow the word gets around non-Jews that Jews won't utter the name of God because it's so powerful, it's dangerous. Magicians love that. They want to utter the name of God thinking a spell or something magical will happen. But most of these magicians, they couldn't read Hebrew. So they transliterate the Hebrew, and if I had a board, this would be easier. easier. But God's name is basically four letters in Hebrew, yod hey, vav, yod hey, vav hey. And if you're a Greek reader, so Hebrew goes right to left, Greek is read left to right, like English and Latin. If you're a Greek reader, that looks like the words um, basically uh, P-Yoda, P-Yoda, or P-P. And we have evidence that's what they call the Jewish God, the God P-P, also known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, in, in, in incantation spells. I didn't either. So, but it's just interesting, but they usually, we find these in what are called the magical papyri we found in Egypt. Okay, I want to I want to make sure we give time. I have I have other questions, but I also know that everybody out there has a lot of questions too. Okay. So uh, if you have a question for Pam, come on up, and if not, I keep going. It's not related to the stuff you talked about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I've just been holding on to this one for a few years. Unimpressed or entitled. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I remember listening back to some of those, and uh, you were like, Dan, can you edit this out? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget. Uh, my friend Richard and I were talking over the weekend just how bizarre it is um, that just like the spread of Christianity at the earliest. And I'm wondering, could have asked Mark the same question, but 
I don't know, he's a little sus. Um, uh, so I'm just going to read it the way I wrote it. If Jews at the place and time of Paul didn't see a need for conversion since Torah is for Israel. I'm making a ton of assumptions, so I want you to correct it. Yeah, if any of these. <laughs> what spurred Paul, as a Pharisee, allegedly, to preach to the Gentiles? And I have my own theory, but I want to hear yours. Well, I'd like to hear yours, because I have a theory. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, sure. Do you want to repeat Basically, yeah. what, would, what would make um, Paul want to preach to the Gentiles, um, assuming that Jews at, during his time didn't really see a need to convert people, mm -hmm. if you will? I didn't want to use the word convert because it's kind of anachronistic, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But. It's a great question. I, I get this question. Thank you, Dan. And I'm very sorry it's been suppressed for all the COVID years or whatever. <laughs> okay, I, I, we didn't cover this. We really, you should have made me cover this. Okay. Ah, two, three hours <laughs> in, we should have covered it. Okay, so you're absolutely right that we don't have evidence that, that Jews, before the time of Jesus, felt that they had to go around uh, making non-Jews into Jews. And I think for reasons we could go into historically, I have every reason to believe that Paul really was a Pharisee or had studied with Pharisees. Um, <clears throat> but when Paul has whatever this religious experience is of um, a post-mortem Jesus, he sees, feels, hears, we don't know exactly what happens, that that this is the historical Jesus has died and he either has a vision or some sort of experience of Jesus living after death, okay? Now, in Jewish tradition at that time, people, um, resurrection is associated with the end of time. Um, so, so people, it, it wasn't believed that you die and then if you're good, you go to have like, like people zombie-like or just getting up out of graves every three days after we bury them, but rather that everybody's supposed to be in their graves until the final judgment. Jews, in traditional belief, have the same belief. And then um, everybody has to be judged together. So when Paul sees the risen Jesus... The first thing I think he thinks is, holy cow, it's like the end, it's like the last judgment because people don't just get up from their graves. So he thinks the end of the world is coming much sooner than he thought when he was a Pharisee. So it, now, if you think the end of the world is coming, in Paul knows his scriptures, right? And to oversimplify a bit, there are basically two traditions within the prophetic literature about what would happen at the end of history. And one of those was <laughs> rather brute, was a little bit like the evangelical take on that God would kill all of Israel's enemies, lift Israel up as the greatest, give them peace and prosperity, and they'd get to oppress the whole rest of the world who would be their slaves. That's one vision of the end of history, the messianic age. Okay? The other one, much more benevolent one, 
is where the lion lies down with the lamb, and we beat our swords into plowshares. And as part of that imagery, all the nations, so this now means non-Jews, stream to Jerusalem together, hand in hand, honoring and respecting one another, but also recognizing from a Jew's perspective, the one true God. Paul went with the latter, I'm pleased to say. And so if he thinks it's the end of the world, and then he thinks, well, I got to get, if the Gentile, the Gentiles have limited time now to recognize the one true God of Israel, but God had promised Abraham that Israel would be a blessing or a light to all the nations, to help all the nations recognize the one God. Is this getting too complicated, Dan? I'm trying. Okay. So, okay, good. Okay. So Paul thinks God is going to, which is what prophets did, right, help God fulfill God's promises by preaching to all the nations about the one true living God. And in Paul's earliest letters, he really uses language. Christians often don't notice how, and it, it bothers me as a Jew, he uses very derogatory language toward non-Jews often. But non-Jews only see the language, negative language he says about circumcision and Jews. So my own students, whenever Paul, Paul always uses the language of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and the nations, Jews and non-Jews, however we translate it. But my, my students often read, when they see that, Jews and Christians. So I have to work and say, no, 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 that's not what it says. And then they think Paul's in the Gentile camp. And so th that's partly why I wrote the book I did. I'm like, no, 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 Paul identifies in the Jewish camp, and he's doing all the Gentiles this big favor. And I think the death of Jesus becomes an atoning sacrifice as a shortcut for all the, you know, idolatry non-Jews have been uh, engaged in so that when the final judgment comes, they're in a position of purity before the God. Does that answer the question? Here's now I have atonement questions, <laughs> but that's going to be like, oh, we're not ta talking oh, about the Torah anymore. <laughs> yes, that tracks with what I was thinking. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> and and it also makes sense of like Paul just making exceptions to all of his rules. Yeah, he's like, yeah, well, you know, what? Cover your head, don't cover yeah, your head. Yeah. <laughs> Eat this. Actually, don't do that if you cause somebody stumble. He doesn't care. He's like, that's the end of the world. Right, like, right. just get right with God. Yeah, do whatever yeah. you need to. Don't yeah. f your mother-in-law and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually in the Bible. It's in there. Um, it is. It's in there. <laughs> Corinthians or something. Yeah. Um, Corinthians, very good. Do you want to take my classes? You'd be a good model for the other <laughs> students. Yeah. Um, the only the only thing that I guess since we kind of share the same view, the only plot hole is because Paul didn't seem to preach the resurrection. He preached the crucifixion, and I know they're tied together, maybe inseparable, but I find that interesting. Um, and maybe the atonement piece. I don't know how that fits into his Pharisaic Judaism and how that tracks. Basically, I'm trying to figure out how a Pharisee would be so convinced that the general resurrection had started 
that he go all over the damn place. I, I look at a map all the time. I'm like, uh, that sounds like a pain in the ass to yeah, travel. No, now. it was hard <laughs> travel. Yeah. So it's not like he could take a plane or a Greyhound bus even. Right. Yeah, so. And then like he's making enemies along the way as well. Like even people that were traveling with him just break off and getting in trouble and he just didn't care. No. He was either like the world's biggest narcissist, which he might have been, um, or he was super convinced that it was the end of the world and he had something right. to do. <laughs> and he played a pivotal role. Yeah, was playing a pivotal role. So that's a really good point. So let me say something about the crucifixion and the resurrection just briefly. In that if... Um, what? I said, look what, look what you did. <laughs> Or should I not? Should no, I? No, no, it's totally fine. We let Dan have the last word. Was, those were very good observations. So, I love I love that you've been holding this in for so long. I know. I feel <laughs> it's like like intellectual constipation of an extreme <laughs> sort. Yeah. So I, I I'm totally fine, and I can I can probably see, well I don't know if I can speak for all of us. I'm fine with just we can go past nine thirty if y'all want to. Well, Dan's was three years old, so, I mean, yeah. Uh, Just that Paul preaches the resurrection way more than the crucifixion. Uh, I I wrote this little book on Paul's letter to the Romans, and the publisher sent me the cover for what this was going to be, and Jesus was like in agony with the crown of thorns and everything, and I say, and the editor is a Southern Baptist, and I say, you know, the crucifixion isn't mentioned in Romans. And he's like, what? I'm like, nope. Can I have a new cover? Because this totally doesn't capture his theology in Romans. I got it. I got a different cover. Anyway, we could talk more about that, though. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just a mini thing. Okay. The reason why I have to ask this is because I think this is the first time that we have you and your lovely husband with us together on the same thing. So you guys kind of hinted at it that sometimes you may have a division of ideologies. (laughs) Are there certain topics where you just have to cry like Oklahoma and (laughs) we have to agree to disagree and kind of like what are those topics? I have to ask it because this hardly ever happens. Since I talk more. (laughs) How long have you guys been married? (laughs) All right, all right. Continue. 24. 23 and a half. Okay. (laughs) Um, So obviously we've learned... it's a great benefit, right, to be, for me, I mean, to be married to someone who overlaps with what I study but also has other kinds of specialization. You could see, we, we have like the whole collection of the ancient Assyrian archives that have been, uh, and, and then all the writings of Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, and they're right next to each other in our house. Those are not my books, okay, I just want to <laughs> say. Um, so, um, in academia, I like if if you're you to be a good academic in my mind, you cannot be a wilting flower. 
You, you, you have to be willing to have vigorous argument as long as it's not personal, insulting, but it is about the subject. I, I believe in this as an ideology. And um, you know, I won't go into other things about how I feel about this. That, that there's a way in which the academic, going back to the ancient Greeks, that skepticism, um, not of the sort that we can't know each other, know everything or anything, but rather that we can ask questions sincere questions about anything and that we should have the freedom to do that in the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. So what Mark and I have is the ability to disagree in a trusted, and in our case, right, an intimate relationship with great vigor at times and you become a better thinker. You, you, you make the best arguments when you know what the other person is already going to object to and you've anticipated those. That's how you write your best work as an academic. And so we have that benefit. So I don't, so the disagreements we have, any, and we have lots of agreements too, are, are beneficial. What Mark likes to do that I, does drive me a little bit crazy is Mark will vigorously follow a line of argument that it turns out he doesn't really believe. And so Dude. I spend all this time knocking down the argument, and he was just playing a game. <laughs> so, um, but also entertain. <laughs> Shall we hear the other perspective? Yes, yes please. It's not that I don't believe them. <laughs> I want to think the piece through. <clears throat> um, for the most part, I wouldn't disagree with what Pam has to say, but most of our conversations are very mundane. Who's going to do the dishes? <laughs> <clears throat> Who's going to grocery shop? Um, and if we manage to get a trip to Israel again uh, and, and we can advertise that and you want to see us in action, you'll see that's pretty much how it works. <laughs> Um, yes, <laughs> this is the way. This is the way. So I don't know that we've, uh, I tend to forget things. So <laughs> Pam doesn't. <laughs> I'm married to one of those. And it's advantageous for me because she'd be like, you said this and I'm like, really? Why would I say that? It, it's helpful. So I, I can't think, I, I mean, I don't know that I can think of a place where, where we got at such loggerheads about something, at least in, in, in academic things uh, or our scholarship. See, she, had, she knows. But uh, I, I would say this, I think we have, uh, Pam's done so much work on learning what she's not. Um, and I've had to do that same kind of work, and apparently I've done it <laughs> to such a degree my students think I am Jewish. Um, and it is a, it, there, there are mindsets, and so that uh, partly what's happening there, not, uh, on the personal level, but on the, also on the professional academic level, is uh, strongly influencing each other in how w how we go about thinking about things. So if 
you to ask me, Dan, the question about Paul. I know an answer, and it's her answer. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced by that answer um, because I've thought it through and, and read her book, and um, I understand how she's created her arguments. Um, Pam is always, uh, Pam is a, a never-ending source of questions, too. So um, that keeps things moving as well. That kind of reminds so that full circle circle here. So b because you know, you grew up in the in the Jewish way, and that's in the Christian way is more of like the the creedal stuff that became more important. Jewish way is more questions. We can get Rabbi Stephen up here, and, and we could have all kinds of great questions. Yeah. Well, I do I do think it's interesting. So the point I didn't make because I was already spending too much time on it, and it is. Um, one of these little burrs in my mind on how to, if not write a book, a good article um, with evidentiary reasoning and not intuition. But the fact that Christians end up not worrying so much about the physical material form of the writing, I think is related to the fact that they end up obsessing so much about controlling meaning. Because if we're all going to call ourselves Christian, a community, we got to have some stable thing in common. And if the Bible, I got this manuscript that says this and another one that says this, um, we, we end up, who is Jesus and what his role is, it turns out to be all over the map. Jews said, uh, could have lots of different ideas. So those in Kabbalah and mysticism I mean, Maimonides, the greatest, perhaps, Jewish philosopher of all time, thought those Kabbalists were out of their mind. I mean, he, he thought they were nutty. Um, but he wasn't going to excommunicate them. The, because if you have a stable text, you, you have a traditional, you actually have an artifact, a ri the central artifact, a ritual artifact that everyone values that's stable that I know when I open uh, a Torah scroll in Genesis, it, if I'm in Spain, Israel, Russia, or the US, it's gonna look exactly the same, even though they could think about it completely different. So I have less anxiety about controlling meaning. Whereas, so I've often wondered if the fact that because Christians didn't end up exercising control over the physical form just to have some coherence to this emerging thing they had to control something and they control meaning and I wonder I'll show my own bias here that seems to me has the potential perhaps for being more insidious I mean because then you have to worry about what you literally think at a given moment and whether it's right thinking or wrong thinking Whereas rabbis could entertain sort, sort of like all kinds of ideas, and we don't know whether they believed them or not, or they were just play to think with. But you write a Torah incorrectly, I don't know what sort of penance you have to do, but you're in major violation of halakha and a Torah, and, and your Torah wouldn't be accepted, or your... You, and by the way, the little mini, mini scrolls of the Shema that are in the Mizuzot have to follow the same scribal rules, uh, rules that a big Torah has. And how those guys write 
so that none of the letters touch each other. I don't know, I, I, it takes a lot of training, practice, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the things that stuck with me from what Mark said along these lines is you talked about um, deal, being able to take Torah and then um, play with the text in a spiritual way to interact with it and let it persuade you. Well, there wasn't a lot of space for that in the evangelicalism I grew up in. It was about knowing the rules, knowing how it applied, and having the right answer. And there's nothing mystical or quite honestly fun about any Here, of that. Here's another thing, and I have a question. Did evangelicals, who clearly love and appreciate the Bible, right? And I, I know many evangelical scholars, good scholars. Do they worry about, so in church Bible studies where you're not with academics, do they, they know that the New Testament's written in Greek, right? Not always. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering how you have a literal understanding if you already know it's a translation. Be, uh, well, I, no, I think that has to do with, like, so God had, has planned these things. So, like, even in English 21st century, you would get that idea that, that this is all part of God's plan for today. However that worked and trickled down, um, it's, it's divine, and you can't argue with that. When someone says that, you, you just can't. The verse, I don't know if Jesus says it, but in the New Testament where it's like all of this can be understood by a child or all of this is, the church that I grew up in was very mm. much like we are farmers, but we can read the Bible and it makes sense to us because, yeah. because it's. Right. Yeah, there have people, uh, yes, uh, what's his name, who made the movies, the actor, Mel Gibson who, when um, criticized for all his inaccuracies of the movie, let's even bracket the anti-Semitism, just the inaccuracies of the movie, I mean, he, he said, basically, I don't need scholars to help me tell the story of the Bible because it's written, I mean, God wants to communicate with everyone. It's written so a child can understand it. And I wasn't on the talk show where I heard his answer. I wish I could have been, but I thought to myself, you can't read the Bible in English unless scholars made, who did know Greek and Hebrew made those translations so that you could read it. And by the way, children's Bibles are an interesting phenomenon if you think about it, right? That Christians have gazillions of children's Bibles. This, this is, you do see this a little bit in Judaism, but when I was a girl, we learned the Bible, no matter how, from the Bible. Um, and because again, if it's the message and not literally the words on the page, you can take it in various forms. And yet there's this idea of literalism and yep. inerrancy that goes with it, which to be frank, for ancient Christians, inerrancy would have been an absurd idea. Yeah. But before print, all the scribes that copy all these things, they know they make mistakes. So, so humans are, it's the word of God. They don't, they absolutely think it's divinely inspired but they know they make mistakes copying it. So that level of, literacy, of li uh, literalism is an unknown idea until after print's been around for a couple hundred years. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Goes to show you again how technology. All right, it is, it is time. Uh, if you want more of a, I don't know, the, the George striking back, maybe he will come back. If you know, I mean, you think you think maybe it's a possibility? You never know. Uh, yeah, but then I have to invite <laughs> me back again because I want first place. <laughs>
I think it, I think it would be kind of fun to have a tie. Uh, <laughs> what? No one's winning. So thank you, thank you all for being here. Uh, just a few things before before we head out. Uh, you you have pint glasses that you could take home with you with little lightsabers in them. Uh, you could take some food home if you'd like. Take some stickers, koozies, pens, whatever you like. And uh, uh, Rob actually has an announcement, I, I believe. And then uh, if you like this episode and you're listening right now, share it, rate it, review it on iTunes, give it a five star, ten star. There is a ten star. And uh, we're at Brew Theology Facebook and Instagram, Brew underscore on Twitter. And if you want to start a chapter in your local community, please email Ryan at brewtheology.org or Janelle at brewtheology.org, and we'll get you going. Uh, we have uh, a plethora, as you would say, of, uh, of content for you to get you going. So thank you all again. Yeah. And, thanks. oh. Can we do endorsements we, like on LinkedIn? Yes. We don't have a LinkedIn. Have LinkedIn. No, we don't have a LinkedIn. Should we? No. I have a we LinkedIn. Well, I don't know why. Under- <laughs> 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 it's funny. My LinkedIn picture, I got a suit on. I'm like, what's that about? <laughs> when does this guy ever wear a suit? Okay, Rob, come on up. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for being here. We really appreciate it. We're Denver Brew Theology, if you're new to the group. Uh, first of all, thank you so much to Mark and Pam. How about a round of applause? <laughs> thank you for being uh, amazing advocates and friends of our community. So my name is Rob Carroll. I co-direct the Denver chapter with Janelle Ramsey. And uh, seven years ago, I met Eric over here and Eric actually told me he said hey there's this thing called brew theology and uh, he said it's a, it takes place in our neighborhood where we live he's like you should come and then Eric and Kelly ushered me into the community that uh, you're surrounded by today with a lot of amazing thoughtful people who want to engage around theology and want to have real conversations want to have an important engagements uh, and value important engagements over right theology that's what we're about here yeah. Um, it's how do we come together and be one with each other, have conversation, uh, and, and how do we not be wilting flowers and respect each other and love each other across the table at the end of the night. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. We meet every uh, week in Denver. We take a summer break. Um, and every other week we have a new topic. So next week we'll remix this topic that we had tonight. Um, we'll have another meeting. We'll, we'll enjoy some Bible conversation. Uh, Rabbi Stephen, you had your hand up. Were you going to say something, or were you just... I didn't know if people heard the recent um, discovery about the monastery, the medieval monastery, where the monks are all copying out Bibles, and, you know, some of them are saying, like, are you sure we got this right? It's like, of course, we've been copying these forever, but the original's in the basement locked up, and the abbot says, no, 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 we're, we're good, but they try to convince the abbot to go make sure that they're copying accurately. The abbot goes downstairs and, and, and doesn't come back. And then the monks go down and say, what happened? And he's banging his head on the wall because he starts, oh, my God, it says celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. There you go. Love it. That's a, that's a fantastic end of the evening. There's a lot of faces in the room that have been around this community a long time. It's really great to see you. Ryan. It's wonderful to have you in town from Texas. Yeah. Uh, and so, thank you. Uh, and we have other folks in from out of town, from Nashville. Uh, so, uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks for being part of our community. Uh, come see us again and have a great rest of your night. See everybody. Cheers. Cheers.